0: Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast, I'm Nathan Birma. In no sport does perfection seem as elusive as it does in baseball, where success can be signified by small percentages and where random bounces lead to unpredictable outcomes. Only a select few Major League pitchers have defied the odds and thrown a perfect game. Others have retired 26 straight batters only to have something go wrong on the 27th. Joe Cox tells their stories in Almost Perfect, The Heartbreaking Pursuit of Pitching's Holy Grail. His book includes three Tigers and two former Tigers, and I wanted to talk to him about all of them. Joe Cox, welcome. Thanks for joining me.
1: No, thank you. I appreciate the chance to join you.
0: You've written about this in your introduction, but tell us, why write about the pitchers that came close to throwing a perfect game rather than those that did it?
1: Well, I felt like the uh, field of the pitchers who thrown perfect games was one that had been explored pretty well. I'd read a, a couple of books about that, and, uh, you know, I always enjoyed those stories, but just, you know, over my own life as a fan, uh, um, my thoughts always kind of went back to the guys who I'd seen come really close to the perfect game, but end up just missing it. And, uh, that, that, those stories were ones that didn't get told. A whole lot, and uh, so I thought I'd do a little research and dig in on those, and uh, the more I learned, the more there was to learn, and and soon I realized I had some pretty good stories to share.
0: So the forward is written by Jim Bunning, the former Tiger who threw a no-hitter for Detroit, and then after the Tigers traded him, which uh, some Tiger fans still haven't forgiven the franchise for, then he threw a perfect game for the Phillies, uh, and he's your fellow Kentuckian. Why have him lead off this uh, this book on pitchers who came close?
1: Yeah, I wanted to try to get the perspective from somebody who did finish it, to say, you know, is it really that different? Is eight and two-thirds that much different? than Nine perfect innings? You know, just to, to get the perspective, I was lucky enough to talk to some of the guys certainly for the book who just missed a perfect game. So I wanted to kind of get the idea from a guy who, who was lucky enough to finish it and to say, you know, is his perspective really any different from theirs? Um, so, so he was helpful from that standpoint. I, there were some other options. I tried to talk with David Cohn. I thought he would be good because he pitched a perfect game was the opposing pitcher in one of these near perfect games that I got to talk about and uh, was in the dugout when David Wells pitched his perfect game. So you know, I just wanted a little bit of a different perspective and, and was lucky enough to get the now-departed Senator Bunning to uh, speak with me and, and provide that.
0: So Tigers and ex-Tigers, like Jim Bunning, are well-represented in your book for whatever reason. I guess it's just part of the randomness that we that we have with baseball in general. But let me ask you about each of the Tigers that you write about. We start sure. with Tommy Bridges in 1932. August 5, 1932, Washington at Detroit. It's a blowout. And Tell us about Bridges. How physically imposing was he on the mound? Well, Bridges
1: was not a particularly big guy, just a kind of small, puny-looking guy who just went out there uh, and and pitched on a lot of guts, and and as his career went on, developed a really impressive curveball. Um, Probably one of the more unlikely guys to approach a perfect game, not because he wasn't a good pitcher. He was a very good pitcher, but he was a pitcher who threw such a sharp curveball that uh, the odds of him going through nine innings without walking somebody probably weren't very good. Uh, but on, on his particular day uh, against the Washington Senators, and, and I'll add that that, you mentioned the Tigers are, are a pretty constant thing. They are. Another one is that the Senators were a team that almost got perfected a whole lot, uh, and that's who he was going against. He's got a one-sided game. He goes eight and two-thirds perfect, gets down to the last batter. And at the time, it's kind of controversial. Walter Johnson is the manager of the Senators, and he uh, sends up a pinch hitter for the 27th out, uh, doesn't let his pitcher bat. Today, you wouldn't think twice about it. Uh, But at the time, the pinch hitter is a guy named Dave Harris. He hits a clean single, and there were some people who said, oh, that's not good sportsmanship. He should have just sent the pitcher up there. Uh, Bridges, for his part, never took any, any umbrage with it. He was quick to say, uh, I didn't want a cheap, perfect game. Uh, he did what I would have done. Uh, and, you know, the guy got a hit, so be it. Uh, but, but at the time, it was kind of a, a big baseball etiquette thing, which is funny to think about now.
0: Yeah, so it was 13 nothing. There was really no purpose in terms of actually realistically trying to win the game to send up that pinch hitter. So Bridges said he wouldn't have wanted the pinch hitter. It would have diminished it. What do you think? Would it have been a tarnished, perfect game had the pitcher come up and uh, taken his place to bat?
1: You know, today it would look odd. In 1932, it probably wouldn't have looked that unusual. Uh, for one thing, uh, most of your pitchers were pretty good hitters back then. Uh, but uh but still i i don't think it was necessarily uh bad sportsmanship, although there were some some people on both teams who kind of took a few pot shots at it after the game uh, and I did find it telling that Walter Johnson went to the the uh, uh tiger locker room to kind of seek bridges out and nobody says he went and apologized or anything but but it kind of made me wonder that seemed a little unusual to me. Uh, but again, Bridges never betrays any any negative emotion toward it, just says, uh, you know, tough break, oh
0: well. And what you do that's so good about each of these chapters that you write, you trace each pitcher's story before and after, and in Bridges' case, there's a bitter epilogue to his career, and it's not necessarily because he didn't get that perfect game, it's just because he simply, apparently, just couldn't adjust to life outside of baseball, but what was Bridges' retirement like?
1: yeah that that's really a very good way of putting it and had some some comments from some former teammates who ran into him after his playing days were over and uh, he didn't do well after baseball you know had had struggles with the bottle, uh, had struggles with his personal life um, and it's a sad irony. I mean one of his teammates is in the book saying that he thinks of bridges every time he sees a kid wearing one of those t-shirts that says baseball is life because he said that that was kind of how tommy bridges approached it and baseball wasn't life you know it, it was something that bridges was really good at he, he had an almost hall of fame level career uh but when he was out of the game he was kind of lost and just kind of flounders his way unfortunately uh, to a fairly early death
0: so the next close call that the tigers had came from milt wilcox in 1983 and by that time he was a veteran. He actually debuted in 1970 for Sparky Anderson's Reds, and Sparky trusted him to pitch, I believe, in relief during the 1970 World Series. Then by the mid-70s, it looked like his career might even be over. Uh, there certainly was no hint at that point that he'd go on to further greatness.
1: Oh uh, No, uh, Wilcox was definitely a guy who kind of has his second wind in his career uh, and has a couple of really good years there, uh, which, of course, coincide with the Tigers hitting a nice uptick. Um, it, you know, he, he has a good year in 83, the near-perfect game, and then, of course, 84, he's a big part of the, the World Series championship team there in Detroit, uh, but it, it's kind of a brief run for Wilcox, and he had a lot of arm problems, and, and there's an element to his story that he probably knows in 83 and 84 that, you know, the harder he works his arm, the shorter the long-term career is going to be, uh, but when you're in the prime of what you're doing, you know, you you've got to kind of say, "Damn the torpedoes," and and you know, put it on the line where it where it lands. And in '83 and '84, he did that. And uh, you know, the World Series championship is is a part of the the results of uh, Wilcox giving what he had then Basically.
0: And I was struck by your description just of the pain he was in and the lengths he had to go to to pitch through it. Give us a sense of uh, what he was going through physically and the injections he got just to stay afloat.
1: Yeah, I, I know that, uh, you know, 84, I think he gets seven different cortisone shots in his shoulder. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm no doctor, but obviously they were doing kind of preventative Medicine here. He probably should have gone under the knife and and had some extensive work done, but it's one of those things where it's 1984, and you got the best team in baseball, and and, you know you're either going to pitch through it or you're going to miss being part of it. And Wilcox wins 17 games that year, so he gets you know all of these shots, and and by the end of the year, yeah, he said he'd he'd go through withdrawal. He'd have hot flashes. He'd have, you know, an irregular heartbeat, uh, and the uh, he, he didn't tell the trainers about a lot of it because he knew if they realized, you know, how dependent he was getting on on the medication, they probably wouldn't have wanted to keep giving him the shots.
0: So Wilcox's close call comes in April 1983 at Comiskey Park, and he loses it on the what would have been the last out to pinch hitter Jerry Hairston, and it's amazing that. Almost exactly a year later, about 51 weeks later, Jack Morris completes a no-hitter at Comiskey Park. Same place, same weather, same month, Uh, and Jerry Hairston hit a hard shot that the Tigers were able to swallow for an out. And uh, I think Lance Parrish said we wanted this no-hitter for Milt, given what he went through earlier. So maybe that didn't fully give him closure. If it didn't, the championship surely did.
1: Oh yeah, You, you would have to think so. Yeah, it has to be difficult, and it's odd that uh, you get uh, two two straight years to have an early season game uh, where the pitcher just comes out of the gate. Hairston was it was a tough out there anyway, and that, that seems to be one of the the constant themes through the book. is a lot of these guys who break up the perfect games, um, were not just decent pinch hitters. Some of the best pinch hitters in baseball uh, got cracks at these, and guys like Hairston. Uh, we're always a tough out, but certainly, uh, with, uh, history bearing down on you, I think we're probably that much tougher. Uh, but, but yeah, you get a sense that, that Wilcox, uh, you know, coming back the next year, winning a title probably helps, uh, helps ease the pain of, uh, missing history a, a good bit.
0: So one of the most famous stories in your book, certainly the most famous and one of the most memorable to Tiger fans, is Armando Galarraga. And for all intents and purposes, he did pitch a perfect game. Uh, First set the scene a little bit. How unlikely was Galarraga to not only throw a perfect game, but even to be a regular starter with the Tigers?
1: Oh, very much, very much. Galarraga really, as a player, was kind of a a one-year wonder. He, He came up as a rookie. Uh, post a 13-7 record, has a pretty good ERA. Um, But really, as far as his career as a successful Major League pitcher, that's pretty much it. From there, it all goes south. He has a really bad 2009 season. Uh, His ERA swells to to something over five. He's got a losing record. He he loses his spot in the rotation. Uh, And he sat down at the beginning of 2010 and has just gotten called back up because... Um, Don Dontrell Willis, uh, the the former great Florida Marlin, uh, the Tigers had him, but they had cut him loose. They traded him to the Diamondbacks. Uh, And so, you know, by vacancy, Galarraga gets back into the rotation and immediately throws this masterful game. And, you know, there there are varying levels of – fame that go with the games that I chronicle here, but this is definitely the one. If if Galarraga doesn't pitch this game, I probably don't get to write this book just because it makes it a tangible thing uh, for anybody who who watched that game to know how much it hurts to get that close and miss.
0: And just about all we remember is the final play, which we'll talk about in a minute, but you remind us of some key plays along the way, including kind of a fluke play in the fifth inning where the ball caroms off of Galarraga himself to Brandon Inge at third base, who retires the batter at first. Then, of course, there is the great Austin Jackson catch. Those plays we would have remembered had he completed the perfect game, but there are reminders along the way that it takes some lucky bounces even to get close.
1: Oh, always, And, and most of these games work that way. It's a very rare thing. A few of these games were the kind where, you know, a pitcher would come out and strike out 12 guys or, or or just be nearly overpowering. But there are a lot of these games where a pitcher strikes out a handful of hitters, gets a good catch or two from his outfielders, gets a lucky bounce or two on a ground ball. Uh, you know, the nature of the beast is just such that to, to get close to 27 straight outs, you got to be not only good but lucky. And there there's some of that for all of these guys. And, and yeah, Galarraga is no exception until luck Uh, cruelly deserts him at the last instant.
0: And it's Galarraga who catches the ball from Miguel Cabrera, steps on the bag, and for a half second, it is as though to him and to everyone in the stadium and everyone watching that he did it. He pitched that perfect game. And then, of course, Jim Joyce makes the signal that he's calling the runner safe. Galarraga's famous reaction is a smile. And you write, and he wrote in his book, Nobody's Perfect, that that smile was disbelief like you got to be kidding me this has got to be a joke is is that the right reading of the smile
1: yeah yeah that's it uh I mean Galaragi is an incredibly magnanimous guy and there's very much an aspect of, of just guy who knows how much this means and knows what he's done uh and you know it's kind of a full heart moment for him uh, but but yeah, to to be there to see it to get the out to know that you've done this and then and, and there's an irony level too. And Joyce is a heck of a great umpire himself. I mean this this play might not get as much attention if Joyce is a ho hum umpire. I, I know in the book I mentioned there was an ESPN survey, I think the previous year where Joyce was voted the best umpire in baseball. Um, you know, certainly a guy who was well respected. Uh, And the last guy, you would think, would blow a very clear call, unfortunately. But, you know, there they were, and they react the way they react.
0: Galarraga is one of the people you write about who, after something happening on the 27th batter, goes and retires the 28th to make it virtually perfect, or perfect except for that one. That almost amazes me more than anything else, that you could collect yourself after that uh, and retire another batter to make that twenty uh, seventh batter the only, in his case, supposed alleged blemish.
1: It's it's amazing how many of the guys do that, and it, it's becoming a little rarer now, just because you know complete games are, are rare now uh, these days. I know with uh, with you Darvish, for instance, in his the, the second that the little bleeder through the infield gets through. Uh, The manager's on his way to the mound to to give him the hook because he's thrown, you know, 100 and so many pitches. Uh, But, yeah, I I, you know, not looking at the numbers on this, but out of the the 16 stories I tell, that probably happened 11 or 12 times. Uh, It's amazing the focus to just. Yeah, after, after getting that high and then having the, the near miss to, to zero back in and get the 27th out kind of blows my mind too.
0: So the legacy of the Galarraga game is twofold, and one of the connections you make is obviously the institution of replay. Replay had been in place for home run calls, at least on fair foul calls, for a couple of years, but this really accelerated the boost to adopt it. And for all the flaws that we see in it today with it, being delayed and we're not sure whether it's going to be overturned or not, or what counts as clear evidence at the very least, the institution of the current replay system ensures that something like what happened to Galarraga will never happen again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the bottom line to it. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of a traditionalist myself. I didn't necessarily know that it was a good thing, but if you wanted replay to be expanded, yeah, this was your, your poster child right here because it's, it's, a uh, Plain as day call it's very easy to fix um and and honestly the thing that surprises me most about the joyce play the the thing that i would have thought would have come out of it quicker than B play i'm shocked that none of the other umpires on the field says hey come on let's let's stick our heads together for a second you know i'm the second base umpire but that guy was out you got that right jim uh I'm kind of amazed, honestly, that that doesn't go on. And I know there's an element of not wanting to to show up to your crew that you work with uh, and you're a team out there. But at the same time, you know, but before replay, uh, I think that was a not totally uncommon scenario. I I remember watching games and seeing it happen now and again. It it wasn't a constant game-to-game thing. But given the importance of the situation and how clear the call was, I'm kind of surprised that it made it, you know, beyond ten seconds, without another umpire saying, "Wait a minute, hold on," let's uh, let's huddle up and revisit this real quick. Hmm. But you know, maybe maybe it was a good thing that it didn't. Maybe if uh, if that had happened, we wouldn't have replay and, and some greater uh, atrocity of officiating would stand. Well,
0: and that brings us to the other part of this legacy, the legacy from this game, and that is just how well both Joyce and Galarraga handled this. They both rose above the moment, it seemed, and with the scene at home plate the next day, uh, they appeared at the ESPYs, they gave interviews, they co-wrote this uh, book together with a ghostwriter, Um, and it really does seem like it became, at the risk of of sounding trite or cliched, it became this larger lesson in sportsmanship, in what's important, in how to handle yourself uh, in adverse circumstances, and, uh, and that lesson had a lot of value. It's, you hesitate to say that was worth what happened to Galarraga, but it certainly took on a life of its own.
1: It did. And, uh, you know, I'll circle back to points that a couple of the other pitchers made, and it's funny how almost everybody I talked to uh, had thoughts on the Galarraga game. Bunning did. Milk Pappas did. Uh, You know, all of the guys who I talked to, that was the one. Everybody knew about that one. Everybody remembered the Galarraga game, watching it, and and how bad they felt for him. Uh, But Pappas was a guy who said, you know, maybe I'm more famous because I got screwed out of a perfect game than if I'd finished it. And I thought that was pretty profound, but I thought, well, you know, this is kind of true. Who remembers Philip Humber? I don't remember him. I mean, I know he's the name on the list of guys who pitched a perfect game. I don't remember his game. I don't remember his career. I remember Galarraga. Uh, and the other thing I'll say that I think exudes from Galarraga is, you know, Harvey Haddock's is another one of these guys who's famous as a hard-luck guy because Harvey Haddix pitches 12 perfect innings and loses his perfecto in the 13th. And in 1991, Major League Baseball made an official ruling that it's not a no-hitter, it's not a perfect game. And Haddock's was still alive, and Haddix's wife actually found out about it and was very upset and said something to him. And Haddock's kind of shrugged and said, I know what I did. Uh, and you get that from Galarraga. He knows what he did. He knew what he did then. He knows what he did now. Uh, it would be nice for him if he was on that list of guys who pitched a perfect game, but he handled it with incredible class. And, yeah, in, in a lot of ways it does make it a better story, unfortunately, uh, for him to not have the perfect game than if he'd just gotten the 27th out.
0: Tell us more about talking with Galarraga as he looks back. It's hard to believe it was almost seven or eight <laughs> years ago. Does he? Did you sense any regret? Does he? Has he come to peace with that fact that the way it happened – made him and made the event more memorable than if it had gone as it should have?
1: Yeah, I, I really think he has. I'll say this. Uh, I, I think a bigger deal for Armando than losing the perfect game is the fact that injury shortened his career, and, and he expressed regret to me that he wasn't healthy long enough uh, to have more of those kind of moments, to be able to show people you know, more what kind of a pitcher that he was. I think he regrets that more.
0: Hmm. So after your book was done, former Tiger Max Scherzer, now pitching for the Nationals, uh, has a perfect game going in the ninth inning. Uh, At what point did you hear about it, and how glad or not glad were you to reopen your book? (laughs) You
1: know, the, the funny thing with that was, yeah, I was prepared to be finished with the book with 15 stories, 15 chapters, and had actually gone on a little bit of a family vacation, was getting ready to take my kids to their first big league game, it was in Atlanta. And uh, had bought the tickets, was getting ready to leave the hotel and head to the ballpark. And I get a message on my phone from a buddy of mine. And he said, Well, you're going to be writing another story now. So I immediately jump on the internet and, and say, You know what? What's going on? What did I miss? Well, the Scherzer game was what I missed. And there was a little trepidation uh, from me just because the other. Fifteen guys, I knew I was going to tell their story. You know, I'd gone to the the Baseball Hall of Fame and and researched their careers, their lives, made sure I had an angle. My my real concern for Scherzer was: is there going to be something that I can talk about? Uh, And the irony of it is, got an incredible backstory on Scherzer that I had never picked up on as a fan. You know, it's this whole story about his brother. He he was one of two children, was very close with his brother. Uh but his brother had some some mental illness, some depression, and had committed suicide. Uh and I never had picked up on this story. Uh but, but his brother was a huge fan of, of Max and his career. And they used to have these great arguments. They they were uh the the brother was kind of a stat head, he was kind of a sabermetrics kid. And of course, you know, Max is this great pitcher, so, so they would have arguments. And one of the things they would argue about for hours and hours was the, the you know the notion that once the pitcher lets go of the ball, he, he's got no control over the game anymore. Uh, and Max couldn't understand this. But I, the more I, I looked at the whole situation with having to lose his brother and go through, Uh, the things that he went through with that I thought what what an interesting metaphor that is for what ends up happening to him there there are so many things in life that you can't control and whether that's you know the the health of your own family whether that's can you get a 27th out in a ball game uh you know in in pitching and in life sometimes you just got to throw your pitch and and what happens happens and, and we go from there and try to put it back together
0: yeah, it's such a touching story, uh, and you tell it so well. And that exact lesson that the brother gave as a statistician seemed to come, and uh, and maybe it gave Scherzer some measure of peace with the outcome. Let me ask you about that last batter, Jose Tabata, who um, Scherzer hit him with the pitch, and Tabata really didn't make any move to get out of the way. And by rule, technically, you could rule that the batter, I don't think you could rule him out, but you could rule that he had to finish his at-bat Either way, it was possible that he technically um, could not have been granted the hit-by-pitch, um, but apparently the umpires were reluctant to do that, and maybe that wouldn't have been a very satisfying way to preserve the perfect game.
1: Yeah, the the one time the, the historically that that happens is when Don Drysdale was setting his scoreless inning streak in, uh, I believe it's 1968, uh, He's in a game against the Giants and he's got the bases loaded and he hits a guy and there goes his scoreless inning streak. But the home plate umpire says, no, he, he didn't try to get out of the way. It's not a hit by pitch. And that is the, the way the rule literally reads. But that's the only time, you know, of any significance that that call has ever made. So I, I made the argument that you could have, uh, have brought that into play. The pitch counts as a ball actually is what happens in, in that instance. Uh, which wouldn't have walked the body. He still would have been at bat. Uh, I, I don't think you make that call, but it's one of those things, you know, the, the broadcasters work the game. say, so, well, he doesn't get out of the way. He's just standing there. But, you know, that, that's one of those judgment call type uh, rules that, that how many times do you see a, a, a batter who really is diving out of the way of a pitch? Most of the time you get hit by a pitch. It happens so fast. You're pretty much stationary anyway. So, it could have been done. I'm not shocked it wasn't done. I don't know that. It would have been a pretty draconian move by the umpire to just say, no, 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 he didn't try to get out of the way. We're not going to call that a hit by pitch. But, you know, stranger things have happened, uh, but it didn't that day.
0: And Scherzer did finish the game uh, as a no-hitter and went on to become one of, I believe, five pitchers to throw two no-hitters in a season. In a sense, that's a more rare achievement, at least numerically. I don't know if it's more or less satisfying for him. But, it again, it's incredible that he recovered to finish the no-hitter.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And he's a perfect example of one of those guys who just, you know, steps off the mound for a second, kind of collects himself, and goes right back to work. Um, and it's interesting because the first guy I wrote about, Hooks Wilsey in 1908, and Scherzer who's the last guy I wrote about, are the only two guys in the book who finished their no hitters. Uh, you know, most of these guys gave up base hits, so so that's the end of that. A few of these guys even, I, I know Brian Holman gives up a home run, uh, so it's not only end of a perfect game, it's end of no hitter, it's end of shutout. Uh, but uh, the only guys who actually managed to go on and finish the no hitter were those two, and then. Milt Pappas walked to the 27th batter, and then he gets the 28th guy uh, to make an out. So those are the only three who ever did it. But I thought it was kind of a neat symmetry to have the, the first and the last guys be guys who go on and, and finish no-hitters anyway.
0: So you talked about following the news with Scherzer or getting the news with Scherzer. Let me ask you about Rich Hill a couple weeks ago. Takes the perfect game through eight, no-hitter through nine, gives up the walk-off home run in the 10th. Uh, were you following him, and and do you have this larger sense that as long as these things keep happening, this is a book you won't uh, be able to fully finish?
1: Yeah, I, I hope that's the case. I was watching, um, let's see, I think I'd been in church that night, but uh, I, I had the MLB app open on my phone, I saw Perfect After Six. Uh, so I thought, well, we better watch this guy. And by the end of the 7th, I'd gotten home, so I turned on the, the TV and watched it on TV, Um, he got a a very beneficial uh, 3-2 strike in the eighth inning. And that was a moment when I thought, well, maybe he's going to do this. Uh, But then, yeah, you get the error on the leadoff batter of the ninth. So the thing for me, uh, there's a, a, uh, you know, glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing of adding to the book. uh, to, To be qualified for the book, technically, he would need to either get 26 outs and lose it on the 27th or have gone through the full 27 outs uh and then lost it which happened with with haddix as i mentioned earlier happened with pedro martinez who went nine perfect innings back in 95 and and like hill didn't get a run and so i had to come back out for the 10th and then lost his um he had good enough stuff it, it was certainly plausible that he was going to do it but uh you know, it, it works out differently. And in a game that reminded a lot of people of the Haddix game because he loses on a on a walk-off hit, and, you know, what, what incredibly terrible luck to pitch that well and end up with a loss.
0: So, Joe, let me ask you, we talked about Galaraga and uh, how well he and Joyce composed themselves and conducted themselves in the aftermath, and you do draw out lessons from each of these cases, and I think coming around at the end uh, with your afterward um, and I have to say the lessons don't feel forced at all. Um, this really is about, this really does get us to ask, what is it like to be close to perfection? What can we learn about dealing with difficulty in life? Um, and it does. It, to me, it didn't come across as overwrought. But tell us about some of these larger lessons, or if lessons is too strong a word, um, just some of the reflections you had on, uh, on what it means as a player, as a fan, as a human to come close to perfection and, and dealing with falling short.
1: Yeah, that, that's, I appreciate the fact that that came across well. That really was what I was, was trying to do because I think in whatever you do in life, uh, you know, as a, as a spouse, as a parent, as a professional, as a baseball player, uh, you know, you, you want to do your best and you recognize that, that you can do some amazing things when you're at your best. Your best is never ultimately perfect. And, you know, if you can have, a really good day, a really good week, a really good year. Um, though those are things we strive for, but we do it knowing that ultimately, you know, the, the other shoe drops sooner or later uh, to some extent somehow. And how do we deal with it? What, what I found out really was that being a pitcher is not that much different than being a writer, being an attorney, which is what I do otherwise, uh, than, than being anything else. I mean, you take your knocks, and, you know, you either let it discourage you, you let it take you out of what you do, or you recognize that failure's part of ultimate success. you got to set it aside like these pitchers do, make your peace with it, get back on the mound, and then do what you do next. Um, And, and, you know, there there were a lot of different ways of doing that. There are guys like Galarraga who used think bitterness just doesn't even enter in regret doesn't even enter in he's so amazed to be in the moment uh, that you know he, he uh, sees the achievement for what it is there are other guys that it's a little harder for I mean I talked to Don Pappas before he passed and and you know nearly 35 years later he was still kind of cranky about you know losing a perfect game on strike calls balls and strikes uh, but at the same time, ultimately for him, it came, I think, because of recognition of, of what he'd done. And the way that he says, you know, maybe I'm more famous for being being screwed out of a perfect game than for pitching one. So, you know, you make yourself get through these things, and, and that's a common thread, whatever you do. Uh, but I enjoyed getting those stories and hopefully telling them in a way that people will relate to.
0: Yeah, well, these are great stories, and they're worth learning about for the first time, or if you're familiar with the general details, uh, revisiting them and digging deeper and learning something new, which uh, which your book definitely helps us do. So, Joe, thanks for the book, and thanks for your time today.
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, enjoyed talking with it. Um, got another one coming in February, just getting it off to the publisher now, although I've got a hold my breath through the beginning of October. It's called the Immaculate Inning, and it's going to be about 30 different baseball feats, some of which will happen again between now and the end of the season. And There, there are things that are single-game feats in there, uh, four home run games, so I had to add something off of J.D. Martinez the other day. Things like that, unassisted triple plays. Uh, just it, it could be single-pitch things even. But then I also wrote about... Uh, season-long exploits or or streaks, hitting streaks, scoreless inning streaks. I wrote about guys winning 30 games, so I talked to Denny McClain for that, and and his thoughts on the odds that he says are longer than one in a million that anybody will do that again.
0: Uh, But
1: uh, keep your eyes on that, the bookshelves for that, uh, hopefully in February.
0: That sounds great, and it sounds like the Tigers will be well-represented again, so uh, we'd love to have you back. Absolutely. We'll make it happen. Joe Cox, author of Almost Perfect, The Heartbreaking Pursuit of Pitching's Holy Grail. Cox is a member of the Society for American Baseball Research and co-author of various books, including Fightin' Words, Kentucky vs. Louisville. He joined me from his home in Bowling Green, Kentucky. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History and join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast.